you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It's amazing how quickly and savagely life 
can change. Just just last weekend, I was messaging Zach. We were talking about uh, there was a bushfire, a charity game of cricket on the TV, and we were complaining about how pathetic the game was. And then uh, a couple of hours later, he calls me, and I was thinking he's just going to talk about the cricket again. And then he tells me that his daughter has a lesion on her brain. She's gone to hospital. 24 hours later, she's diagnosed with a brain tumour. Throughout the week, discovering just how bad it is. And after that diagnosis, I thought to myself, well, first of all, do I preach this week? And if I preach, what do I preach on? We've been going through this book of Revelation. Do we just jump out of that? Find another passage, Psalm 139, my favourite passage. Or do I we go to John 11, Lazarus and Jesus? Where do we go to? And then I was looking at the passage again and realised that actually I think this is the right passage for today. You see, today we're going to see the glory of God. That's what this passage is about. John is given an insight, he's beckoned up to the throne room of God and he's told, I want you to see what God is like. And I want to suggest to us today that this is what we need to hear. That's what Zach and Amber and Lara need to hear, it's what we need to hear. In the midst of suffering or difficulty or challenge, we need to see who God is and find the one that we can trust. That's what we need. And so I'm actually so glad that this God foreordained it, that we would look at this passage today. So how about I pray as we get into it. Father, we thank you that you are a good God and our Father. And you want us to hear something today. You want us to see something and understand who you are. So we ask that that might happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Revelation is a book of visions, and in this vision, John is invited up to heaven. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is a picture, of course, of God's rule. Psalm 47, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. Revelation's constantly drawing our eyes to the throne. Forty times it talks about the throne of God in the book, 19 times in just these two passages. And it's a symbol of God's sovereignty. God rules He is in control. That is the first thing that John is shown and it's the first thing that we need to see. Every person needs to see that God is in control. God is on his throne. And then I want you to see how God is described. Verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Canellian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John is shown the throne and then the one who is sitting on it, God himself, or what he can see of God. You see, it's actually impossible for us as humans to see God. We're told in 1 Timothy 6 that he dwells in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. In a sense, God is like the sun. You think of the sun, you can see its presence everywhere. You know that it's powerful, but you can't stare at it. And so it is with God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is that glorious that we cannot see him face to face just like that. It would just be too much for us. 
And so John, when he's shown the throne and the one who sits on the throne, he's not shown God himself. He's shown a series of images that point him to God, that help him to approach the unapproachable. And so he's told that God is like these precious stones, the jasper and canelian. Uh, precious stones hold light and then diffuse it out. That's what God is like. These images are meant to, to, to show us something of who he is, but then explode it out as well. Because there's no word, there's no description that can ever fully adequately describe God. He's beyond description. We're supposed to see how beautiful he is. And around him there is this halo, the rainbow-like an emerald, which points us, of course, to the great flood in Genesis. How did that end? It's God's mercy. The flood is God's justice and God's response to human sin, but also the way he responds in mercy. And so we're supposed to see here that God is beautiful, glorious. And we're supposed to see, too, that he's powerful. In verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You sense his power in that moment. You know, those times was a really bad thunderstorm and you realise just how powerless you are. That There's lightning around you and you could just, if it hits you, you'd be destroyed. And so we have this sense of how big God is, that he could crush us if he chose to. We stand as nothing before him. And yet as well, there is this picture of his total control of things. The sea around him is crystal clear. Uh, In the Jewish consciousness, sea meant chaos. They were afraid of the sea. But here, it's just still and calm. It's like that moment where Jesus is on the waves and there's this great storm and he calms it just with the word of his mouth. So we're supposed to see that God is completely powerful. He's beautiful and he's powerful. The throne is fizzing with power, one writer says. And then we're shown what's around this throne. We see the throne, we see God upon it, and then we see what's around it, and it's worshippers, everyone worshipping. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There's a lot of conjecture about who these elders are. Some people think uh, it could be an exalted angelic order. Uh, What's more likely is that it represents the people of God. Uh, The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles represent all of God's people. The old Israel, the new church, as one writer puts it. This is God's people. Uh, Really, who they are is not as important as what they do, because what they do is worship. Verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And it's the same with the living creatures. We have these four living creatures. It's probably a representation of all creatures. So there's humanity and all of the rest of creation is joining together to worship this God, honouring him. And it just cascades as, as they declare their praises. It just reverberates through heaven. And before we know it, everything and everyone is bowing down in worship, worshipping God's holiness and his perfection. He is the thrice holy God. Acknowledging his strength and power. He is the Lord God Almighty. And then in light of that, giving our strength. They cast their crowns before him. Our crown is is our own honour, our own glory and dignity. And we put all of that before God. Because when you see who God is, the natural and proper response is worship. 
He is the one who deserves all things. I want us to see today the infinity of God, the matchless, limitless everything of God. Well, chapter 4 is like the scenery of a stage, one writer puts it, and then chapter 5, the drama begins. We've been shown God and then we see the drama of history that unfolds. In verse 1, we're told that in the right hand of God on the throne there is this scroll written with things on every side and it's sealed with seven seals. God is on this throne holding this scroll and then there's a search through heaven. Who can open this scroll? Who can read it? And no one is found. And we're told that John weeps. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is he so upset? I think we need to understand what's on the scroll. You see, it seems that the writing on the scroll is the narrative of history, the plans of God. And in particular, his response to the crisis of world history. See, John understands the story of the world and of creation. That it began beautifully. That this God that we see here on the throne, the one who created all things, made everything good and very good. It was all perfect and wonderful. But then we read in Genesis 3 that humanity turned away from him, rebelled against him. There is something within humanity that that, that we seek to create our own world. But when we do that, everything falls apart. A curse comes into this world. That's why this world is messed up. It's our sin, but it's also outside of us. There is this curse on the world that brings disease and death and cancer to little children. This world is messed up. And there is this spirit within the world that would seek to destroy God's people. And John has seen that as well. He's writing at the end of the first century. There are churches around him that have suffered. He himself is in exile. If we believe he's one of the 12 apostles, uh, the rest of the apostles, he's probably the last one standing. 11 of them have died. Many of them have been tortured and killed. Peter crucified upside down. John knows suffering. He knows the brokenness in this world. And so he's desperate to see how this story will end. He wants God to act and to do something, to resolve it. He wants a happy ending. But as he sees this scroll, he senses that that's there. The the happy ending is in the scroll, but no one can open it. He weeps because he thinks that that means there will be no happy ending. God's purposes won't happen. That's what he senses, that unless the right person can be found to open this scroll, then history will just unravel. There'll be no response. God's people will just keep getting bullied. The bully will not be judged. Suffering will just keep on happening. Disease will continue and there'll be no point in it. There'll be no good ending. There'll be no resolution. That's what John fears and that's why he weeps. But then, just as he starts to lose hope, someone is found. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is someone 
who can do this. God's plans will be fulfilled because they have found Jesus. That's who we're being pointed to, of course, isn't it? He is the Christ, the lion, the lion of Judah, this great, noble, powerful, strong creature. He's also the root of David, the descendant of the King David, the greatest king that Israel had known. And now we're told that he has conquered and so God's plans can be put into place. And John is rejoicing at this. He's hearing this picture of the lion and how God is going to do all of this stuff. But then he turns and he sees instead, he's expecting a lion, but he sees instead a lamb. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He expects a lion, a demonstration of God's strength, but instead he sees this lamb who is slain, a weak-looking creature, a sacrificed creature. But there's something more to this lamb. Uh, He stands between the throne. He's worshipped by the creatures. He must be God himself. And and then we're told that he has these seven horns and seven eyes, the seven spirits of God. Uh, Seven is the number of completion. And what we're being shown here, that Jesus has everything that he needs. The seven horns speaks to his strength. The seven eyes speaks to his knowledge, his insight, his wisdom. The seven spirits speaks to his presence sent out into all the world. This is God himself. Jesus has everything. He is complete. He is the slain lamb, but he will rule as the slain lamb. You see, it was in Jesus' death that he did all that was required It was in Jesus' death that he conquered death itself. Our sin brought death into the world, brought a curse, brought all of those horrible things that we see around us. But Jesus, the one who made the world, stepped into this world to rescue it and to save us in it. In the Old Testament, they would have a sacrifice, they would sacrifice a lamb. If you were conscious of your sin and you realized that you'd fallen short of God's glory, you would go to the temple and you would bring a lamb and you would put it there on the altar and then you would put your hand on the lamb and you were saying to God, I'm giving this lamb all of my sin, all of my guilt. I recognize that I've done the wrong thing, that I deserve your justice, but put it on the lamb instead of on me. That's what you were doing. And then the lamb would be sacrificed for you. And now we're told that Jesus is that lamb. John 1, 28, John the Baptist comes and he says, he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the glory of the Christian message. We recognize the the mess of this world and our sin and our place within all of this stuff. And then we give it to God. We put our sin on Jesus the lamb, and he sacrifices himself for us. That's the wonder of this. And it looks like the shame of God that he would die, but actually it's his glory. Colossians says that he triumphed over all things on the cross. See, he rose from the dead, and it demonstrated that he had defeated death, and now he starts to make all things new. So what looked like his defeat was actually his glory. 
Jesus died so that we might live. That's what John sees and that's what John uh, is shown Verse 9, we're told, by your blood you ransom people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In dying, Jesus conquered and draws people to himself. He solves the problem. And so all of creation and every, all, every part of heaven is worshipping him, acclaiming him for his glory and his worth. And I love how it finishes in verse 14. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen means, yes, let it be so. Uh, Justin Martyr, who was a second century Christian, said that when his church would gather together, they would conclude with a very hearty Amen. And he said it was like a shout of applause. Corinthians says that Jesus is the Amen. That he is the yes to all of God's promises. Jesus is the one who opens the scroll. He is the yes to all of God's plans. And so we worship him knowing that he makes the ending happy. That he resolves it. And so we praise him. And all of heaven praises him. And we are invited to join them. A couple of weeks ago, we started this series and uh, I heard someone responded uh, saying, oh, you know, look, this is a newcomer. It's interesting that studying Revelation, don't really see the point of Revelation. Um, And often if you've studied Revelation before, it can easily degenerate into just this kind of big debate about what does this metaphor mean? What does this symbolize? And blah, blah, blah. And a lot of it is a waste of time. But actually, what we're supposed to see here is God himself, and that should change our lives. Revelation 1 begins that we're told that anyone who hears the message of this book and responds to it will be blessed. We're supposed to be blessed by this. This passage is supposed to bless us. Even in the midst of the valley of darkness, this passage has something to say to us. The word revelation actually means unveiling, as Guy said a couple of weeks ago. It's like God is just bringing down the curtain so we can see stuff. And what he wants us to see is the real, the real thing. See, we live in this world and it's all physical and we all see everything around us, but there's actually another reality. There's a spiritual reality that's here. that's happening alongside us. As we meet today, there are people worshipping God in heaven. And God wants us to see this. Tim Chester writes, John is showing us a different reality, or rather a different version of our reality. It's as if we're seeing reality from the other side. We're being flipped inside out. We're given the view from above in addition to our view from below. The normally unseen world that exists side by side with the seen world becomes visible in John's vision. That's what we're supposed to see. So God wants us to see something. And I want to suggest three things today what he wants to show us and how we can respond to this passage in a way today and this week that changes us the first thing is I think God is saying look up Uh, Michael Gorman says that John's peak into heaven is a a vision of worship that then becomes a call to worship I was reading this passage a week and a half ago just in my personal devotions and uh just really stopped me in my tracks. Often I'll just be reading the Bible and I'll just jump from that into some emails. I mean, 
prosaic and mundane. And it felt like I couldn't do that after reading this passage. It's just too big. I mean, yes, I know there's a place for emails and we worship God in our work, blah, blah, blah. I get, I get all that. But there is also a moment where we just have to stop and we have to look up and see how great God is, how big he is, his matchless infinity. And this is one of those passages. And it's interesting, as soon as I did that, I felt like I had to get on my knees and pray and it's interesting that the, the impulse, when you see the glory of God, the bigness of God, you find yourself needing to get as low as you can. You find yourself on the floor. Why is that? Well, actually, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which means weight. When we feel the weight of God's glory, we have to get down. When we look up and see how remarkable he is, we feel how big he is, how glorious it is. I heard a nice analogy for this the other day. Uh, if I gave you a $100 note, you would feel the weight of that, right? You'd feel its significance. If I gave you the keys to a Ferrari or a diamond ring or something precious or I, I gave you a, a baby to hold, you, you carry the weight of that. You feel the glory of it, don't you? And that's, that's what happens when we really look up and see God. We feel the weight of his glory. And it's important for us to feel this and to feel this regularly. See, often we, we don't see God properly. We cloud him out. We fill our lives with all of these things that are temporary and small and busy. And so sometimes we can kind of lose him so to speak but then he shines through doesn't he you know, uh, there's times where you're out in the mountains or something and you're like, oh, there's there's a god I, I can sense i can see that this happened because of god uh, when i go out for a walk in the evening uh, as soon as i start walking i smell the air and i realize that no there is a god there's something outside of this who's made this and given this to me we need those moments we need to remember that God is there, that he's real, that he's big, that he's good, that he's glorious. That's actually why it's so important for us to gather in worship too. Uh, you see, right now, the angels of heaven are worshipping. And for an hour and a half a week, we echo that. We come together and we join them. This isn't just, uh, every Sunday we don't just gather to have a, a nice little Bible talk, a sing-along. It's not just a news time where we tell you all of the events we want you to come to. It's not a calendar sync. It's an encounter with God. That's what's happening here, right now. And that's what's happening in heaven. There's something big about this moment, about all things. And then as we gather like this, we start to see God more clearly. Max Anders likens it to a diamond in the rough. You just imagine you just pass this clump of dirt. It has no value, to extend the analogy. It's not a $100 note. It doesn't look like a $100 note. Whatever. What is this? But it's a diamond underneath. And as we gather, 
as we study God, as we look at the greatness of God, the Spirit of God is kind of rubbing away all of that rough until the diamond is seen underneath. And as Anders said, he's not making God better, he's just helping us more accurately perceive him. And as that happens, as we increasingly perceive God's value, we automatically begin to give God the glory that is inherently due to him. We start to feel his weight. We start to recognize his significance. And so we praise him. And so we need to look up and remember him. And then the second thing that happens is that as we look up and see God, we start to see down, see around us. We see that God is worthy of worship and then we see that the things around us are not. We need this. We all need this. See, the first uh, readers of Revelation, the people of the seven churches of Asia, they were surrounded by the glory of Rome, the immensity of Rome. It was an incredible empire, the greatest empire the world had seen. Glorious architecture, massive amphitheatres, incredible technology like the aqueduct, and, uh, these mighty armies that had just marched through the known world. They were surrounded by all of this. And at the heart of it was the emperor who was now worshipped as God. He was the one who'd made all of this possible. See, the Romans believed that the gods had specifically chosen Rome and that the gods had raised up the emperor to exercise the gods' rule. And so then they believed that if everyone worshipped this god, the emperor, then they would see all of these blessings. And it would have been easy for the, for the Christians to believe this. You know, it seemed to be working. They had clean water. They had great roads and they were comfortable and they were powerful. It would have been easy for the Christians to believe all of this and to start to worship the emperor. I mean, they would give the emperor names like the son of God. He was the saviour of the world. And it would have been easy to just be intoxicated by all of that. But then God shows them who's really in charge. That's what we see in Revelation 4. We see who God is. He's not just a king of a few provinces. He's the king of kings. He rules the universe. He rules all things, the whole cosmos. And when you look at that and you see below, then the emperor looks pretty small. That's what they needed to see. And we need to see this too. You see, all around us, we have this world that's shiny and impressive And it would be easy for us to be intoxicated by it. We start to see the things that are created in this world and and we start to invest in them. We start to worship them. It might be money, it might be power, it might be pleasure. Sometimes it's even good things like family or whatever. But we start to invest everything into these things. We start to look for the infinite in these things. We start to look for meaning and for purpose and for satisfaction. But the finite can't give us the infinite. Only God, the truly infinite one, can give us what we need. And we need that. We need him. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that uh, God is the centre of all things, that holds everything together, like his wisdom. And uh, when you understand him, when you have a relationship with him, then everything else makes sense. And when you don't have that, everything else falls apart. He says there's no circumference. If you don't have God and you don't understand that, then you're just wandering around in this kind of mess. 
You're looking for this thing to give you satisfaction or give you hope. But it can't do that. And then what happens when it all falls apart? What happens when your daughter is told she's going to die? Where do you go to then? You need something that no finite thing can give you. You need God. You need hope. You need his strength. When you look up, you can see down. You see who to worship and you see what not to worship. You see that God is powerful and good. And you see that nothing else can provide what he can and that actually nothing else is even needed because he gives everything. So we need to look up so that we can see down and then finally we need to be able to see ahead. Uh, I was reading someone this week who said that in many respects Revelation 4 and 5 is essentially the climax of this book. So why is there another 17 chapters afterwards? We're shown here God's greatness and his ultimate victory. He is the one who has conquered. We're told that. So why the rest of the book? Why is it necessary? I think that chapter 4 and 5 is God's spoiler. You see, what's going to happen in the weeks and months to come? We're going to see some really hard things. The story that Jesus is unfolding, the story that's on the scroll has a lot of hard parts, difficult narrative. We're going to see that God's people suffer. There are enemies who would seek to destroy us. We're going to see that there's times where people, there are temptations that would drive people away. We're going to see that there, there are people you see as your brother and sister who might fall away and stop following Jesus. We're going to see that there is suffering Wherever you have it, an operation, it's still going to come back. We're not going to get it all. The curse is still in the world. There will still be suffering. That's what we're going to see. And so before all that, God wants us to see how the story ends. That there is actually a happy ending that there is something beyond the suffering. God wants us to look up and see that he is in control and see ahead. He wants us to walk with him through the storm. It's difficult to do this. God's people in the first century had a great challenge ahead of them. We know that they've started to experience persecution. Last week we heard about Antipas in Pergamum who was martyred. The church at Smyrna was told that there was a great persecution coming to them. 2 verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. That's what's ahead for them. So before that, he wants them to see what's beyond that. What's beyond the persecution? What's beyond the suffering? And it's hard for us to understand how all of this works. See, another church in Philadelphia was told that they weren't going to suffer. Why Smyrna suffer and why not Philadelphia? 
Why does one child die and not my child? Why, why do some of us experience great difficulties and not others? We don't know. We question and we wonder why God is doing certain things. And it's easy for us to doubt his goodness in all of this stuff and to wonder how to get through this. And so God says, look up so you can see ahead. Look up and see God's goodness and his greatness and know that there is a future, that there is a happy ending, that he is making all things new. Revelation 21, there will be a time where there is no weeping, no crying, no pain, no suffering. And we know that because Jesus has conquered already. I heard a cool story. Some of you came to our briefing a couple of weeks ago. We'll have heard this story. But I heard about some theological students who were um, st- just hanging out at a, a gym, uh, playing basketball, and there was this old guy who used to come in and uh, he'd just sort of sit there and read his Bible. And these theological students come up to him and go, oh, yeah, what are you reading? And he says, Revelation. And so they say, oh, do you understand it? He said, yep, yep, I do. And all these theological students have spent years trying to understand it. So, oh, what does it mean? What's it all about? And he just said, Jesus wins. That's what Revelation is about. Jesus wins. In the midst of the conflict and the difficulty and the persecution and the suffering and the aching grief, right? There's just times this week where it's just been... And ache. This isn't even my child. This isn't my child. But it's an aching grief. And if you're here, you may well be feeling it too. It might be that you, at one level, you can't. I mean, someone said to this after the 9 a.m. service. It's the worst thing that you can imagine, this kind of grief. And yet you can imagine it too. Imagine losing someone so close to you, someone that is so precious to you. That's an aching grief. And so you need to see what's on the other side. You need to see that there is a God who's in control. You need to look up so you can see down See, there's nothing else that will do. And then you can see ahead that this story will end and it will end well. And I want, as we travel through that, I want you to see 5 verse 8. We're told that there are all these creatures worshipping and they're holding a harp and then we're told that they hold golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We have this epic picture of heaven, the throne room of God. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's big stuff. It's massive, it's infinite. And there, amongst it all, are our prayers. In the Old Testament, incense was part of the sacrificial system. It would be this thing that would, you'd offer. And we're told that the smell of the incense pleased God's heart. That's what our prayers are like. They please God's heart. 
God knows and understands that it's a difficult season that you have to walk through. And so he wants us to pray in the midst of it. And when we pray, he treasures it. So whatever your suffering is right now, maybe there's someone in your family that's rejected you for your faith. Maybe there's people at work who are intimidating you. Maybe you're just in great suffering yourself. There's stories among our church here that I don't know, some that I do. A diagnosis that you've just got, you haven't even shared. Whatever it is, there will be a difficult season, but God wants us to see beyond that, to see ahead of that. And for us to see that he loves our prayers. Sometimes we pray boldly, confidently, expectantly. Sometimes we pray just grabbing on, feeling like our fingernails are all that's there. And God loves it. God wants to be with us through all of it. The God of Revelation 4 came and died for us so that he could end the story and end it well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. Wherever we are in our life, I know that there's sufferings in, well, right through this room, broken marriages, grief of someone lost, the fear of a new diagnosis, whatever it is. I know that there's the challenge of facing persecution and questions. And through all this, we might be tempted to doubt you and to question whether you're there at all. So thank you for Revelation 4 and 5. Thank you for showing us the throne room. Thank you that you are there. Right now, you are there. And right now, our prayer is rising up to you. Lord, help us to look up, to see you. Help us to see down and to put away the stuff that can't satisfy us. Only you can truly satisfy. Help us to trust you and then to see ahead. You will end this story and you will end it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.